Udhang dhamang sanghang namasam. So this is the time of year, the full moon when we each year uh, reflect on the occasion in which the Buddha delivered a teaching that we, we traditionally refer to as the Owada Patimoka. It's uh, three brief stanzas that were given and recorded and uh, also to be found in, in the Dhammapada and often quoted and, and worth, worth reflecting on, particularly worth reflecting on. Uh, although they sound very simple, they're very profound and significant. And there's one of these stanzas, I think it's 183 in the Dhammapada, if I remember correctly, which says, there's just four lines, which says, refrain from doing that which is evil, cultivate that which is good, purify the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Again, it doesn't sound very complicated, and you might think, well, that's pretty obvious. However, can we really live these teachings? It's one thing to understand intellectually, to have a conceptual appreciation. It's something else to really be able to apply them. Yeah, much the same as you can read a recipe book, that's not difficult. Go online and order a recipe book and it gets delivered and you open up and you have the ability to read it. But do we know how to really cook a meal? It's quite something else to translate what you read off a page of print into cutting the food and preparing the food and and putting it on the hob or putting it in the oven. It's quite something else. And so it is with our practice. We, we can read and hear what the Buddha taught. However, applying these teachings is something else altogether. And, and as with uh, having a, a good recipe or, or even with having raw food, if it hasn't been cooked, uh, and hasn't been eaten, are we going to be nourished? And likewise with the teachings. And having the books on the shelf or even having read or heard some of these teachings, that doesn't mean to say that our hearts are going to be nourished or even more importantly that, that our hearts are going to be transformed into that which we have faith is possible for human beings. So the realisation of of real wisdom and compassion. Even believing that the recipe book produces amazing food, or even believing that the Buddha's teachings are amazing, is still not enough. So this evening I'd like to reflect for a few minutes on this short stanza and, and see how it might, how we might apply ourselves, how we might apply these teachings uh, to our lives. And the first line of this stanza 
<clears throat> which in Pali says sabba papasa karanang, which is refrain from doing that which is evil, papakama. Akaranang, uh, we might recognize that Pali expression from when we chant the Krani Metta Sutta. Uh, Karaniya Mantakusalena. This is this is what should be done. And in this case it is Akaranang, this is what should not be done. And it's significant that that the Buddha started with this. It's it's similar to that point I was making in the talk I gave uh, recently uh, about dealing with dilemmas where I talked about preparing the ground. If we, if we don't have a, uh, a suitable uh, state of mind, if our hearts are not made ready, then even though we might read the teachings and we may listen to teachings, if there isn't a degree of readiness, then maybe the teachings are not going to take effect. I have this image in my mind, I, again, it's many years ago, and I think it's correct, of where Ajahn Chah was talking about this stanza, and he said it's like when you are going to dye your robes, he's talking to the monks, and you, you put a lot of effort into, into chopping up the, the, the kanun tree, which is the jackfruit, and you make what's called gankanun, or the, the juice of the, the jackfruit tree, and it's a lot of work for chopping the chips up and boiling it down and then concentrating it and then putting your cloth in and then dyeing the robes. He said, however, if the robes are dirty, then the dye doesn't stick, it doesn't take. So this is like cleaning the cloth. So before you put the cloth in for, for dyeing, you've got to clean it first, get, the, get the, uh, the finishing on the cloth removed so it doesn't, or the dirt off the cloth removed, so it doesn't stop the dye from sticking. Likewise, our hearts need to be made ready so this refrain from doing that which is evil or unskillful or inappropriate. Well, so obviously we'd all know what the basic moral principles are encoded in the five precepts. However, we also, if we want to take these teachings seriously, we need to take it to another level and, and really reflect for ourselves what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what is skillful, what is unskillful. Learning how to say no to our heedlessness. Uh, learning how to say no to that within us which is wild and unruly. Uh, and in a skillful way, like it's a right restraint, there's neurotic restraint, which is, oh, I shouldn't have another piece of chocolate, and if you've got diabetes and the doctor said you've got to stop eating chocolate and say, well, I must restrain myself from eating chocolate. And so you grit your teeth and I won't eat chocolate, I won't eat chocolate. Oh, I'm going to eat chocolate. That's not right restraint. Cultivating right restraint, Indriya Sangwara, that, um, which is an important part of our training, cultivating right restraint requires mindfulness. There needs to be... Uh, a readiness to acknowledge, I want to eat chocolate. Really want to. I really want to eat this chocolate. There's the mindfulness there's of the feeling in the body and, and the thought in the mind and fear of maybe I'm going to fail at my practice. And there's, there's an alertness to it. And yet we 
say no to it, not repressing the desire out of willful denial, really acknowledging and saying, no, no, I want to be able to say no in a skillful way. Really preparing our hearts and minds with right restraint or skillful being able to inhibit that within us which is not suitable, that is wild, untamed. Maybe at this point I could mention a, a story from uh, an incident from when Ajahn Chah was visiting the West. Maybe it was while he was visiting the West or maybe it was after he went back to Thailand. I don't remember now. However, he commented on how enthusiastic Westerners were uh, with their uh, going on retreats and observing silence and being very strict and trying very hard and asking lots of questions about Dhamma and, and uh, he commented how, oh, in Thailand, you know, the way we approach teaching Dhamma is we always talk about starting with sila, sila samadhi panya, sila samadhi panya. However, if you start teaching like that to Westerners, they're just not going to be interested. They don't want to know about sila. They, they want to know about samadhi and panya. They want the higher teachings. And, and he said, if that's what they're interested in, that's where you have to meet them. Meet them where they're interested give them the higher teachings and answer their questions about Dhamma and encourage them to sit meditation. And then he said it's like they're sitting there meditating and their mind becomes a little calm, a little peaceful and then then, uh, their seeing becomes a little clearer and then they they suddenly start noticing and he gave the example, he said it's like sitting there and right in front of you you've got this dakar, which is a, a very nasty centipede it's about to bite you, and, and you start. You wake up to the consequences of living a life of heedlessness, the danger that you're in when we don't actually exercise sila. So maybe our practice starts with an interest in samadhi and panya. However, sooner or later, it's important, it's essential, that we arrive at a recognition of how important it is to exercise uh, a commitment to. Uh, integrity, to be able to say no to that which is not suitable, to train ourselves to be able to say no to that which is not suitable. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the other day I gave the example of of a, a, a medical procedure where if you're perhaps bandaging a wound and you need a, a sterile environment, so first you wash your hands and and then you use this instrument to pick up that instrument and that instrument to pick up the bandage and and in doing it in a particular way you maintain a sterile environment and without that there's a risk of infection and, and so it is with our spiritual practices that some people might be keen to go on retreats and study a lot of Dhamma and listen to a lot of Dhamma talks however not willing to make the effort to exercise the right sort of restraint, skillful restraint, and and honour the uh, encouragement that the Buddha gave to cultivating impeccability. And then you can build up, maybe, maybe you can build up a lot of energy, a lot of intensity in practice, maybe even develop some samadhi. However, if we don't have skillful restraint in place, then our habits of heedlessness can can kidnap that energy 
and become potentized by it and end up getting ourselves into big trouble. So wherever we start in this practice, sooner or later it's important we come back to appreciating the core importance uh, of our commitment to integrity and and not not just not just giving ourselves an out because you know we think it doesn't really matter. So oh it's just a little tipple, you know, we just take a drink here or a drink there and maybe then it becomes a big tipple or a regular tipple and a fellow I I knew some years ago came to see me and expressed a disappointment about how he had gone to visit a one of the Buddhist groups associated with associated with this monastery and and uh, join in the meditations and the, the Dhamma talks there and and then he uh, he was looking for support because he's an alcoholic and when he joined this group and they invited him to go out for a walk at the end of the walk they all ended up going to the pub together and it wasn't uh, for a meal and he had the assumption that because the Buddha taught the five precepts that these uh, people who were ostensibly committed to the Buddha's teachings uh, wouldn't be drinking alcohol and, and well there's a, a lot of people who who do keep the five precepts impeccably however there's also the tendency to think a little tipple here or there doesn't really matter yeah. well when we look at the state of the world uh, at the moment and you see the extraordinary degree of chaos and distress there is around what is our contribution to stability to clarity what are we contributing are we contributing our commitment to integrity and or are we uh, merely judging other people people in positions of of power and influence who who seem to be uh, compromising all over the place uh, are we really in a position to be judging them right cultivation right commitment right restraint which means not that's not the same thing as neurotic moralizing and judging ourselves rather developing our spiritual faculties so that when we do experience habits of heedlessness we get interested in them we study them and exercise restraint in a way that makes a real difference so this first line and the the stanza that the Buddha gave of refraining from that which is unsuitable. And then the second line, kusalasa uh, upasampada, cultivating that which is good. This is building up the storehouse of goodness. First preparing the ground, the environment for practice, and then building up the storehouse of goodness. And we may have uh, a lot of hope when we hear these teachings and a lot of faith and more than hope a lot of faith and enthusiasm and a wish and an interest to really uh, develop insight and understanding and, and bring about transformation. Well, from the Buddhist perspective, there needs to be an accumulation of kusala or kusun in the Thai language. And uh, uh, kusalasa upasampada, cultivating that which is good, building up a storehouse of goodness. And, and so this is something we are wise to really stop and reflect on. How do we do this? How do we, where, when, and how do we do this? This is, these first two lines of the stanza are a lot of to do with our daily life practice. Uh, 
know, refraining from that which is unsuitable and cultivating that which is good. Like, like for instance, like expressing, expressing gratitude. Are we able to express gratitude? We live in a state of extraordinary privilege, extraordinary good fortune. Never before in human history have so many people had the luxury and the convenience that, that so many of us have these days. The access to, to medical treatment, to food, uh, shelter, warmth, education. However, because of the way that uh, our minds are conditioned and the way our society's evolved, particularly over the last hundred years, I read something some months ago, a report about how along with industrialization there was a recognition that that uh, those people who are producing various goods for sale, if they could generate a sense of need in the general society, convince people that they're lacking, then they will be more interested in buying their goods. And so ever since around the beginning of the last century there's been this aspect of our, our society that, you know, convincing people that they're lacking and they'll be happy when they have more. Uh, consumer society, the values of the consumer society. You'll be happy when you have more quicker. So don't wait. Get a, a, uh, take out a loan or you need this holiday before you're going to be happy. You're, you need this upgrade. You need this new phone. These are not necessarily bad people. This is just a lack of awareness of how the dynamic of, of consciousness, that when you uh, condition consciousness to be greedy, you actually make people unhappy. When you condition consciousness to be dissatisfied and uh, discontented, then you actually make people unhappy. And, and it takes a certain degree of, of clarity and wisdom to be able to see that. And I would suggest there's not an excess of that clarity and wisdom in our culture. And so as a result, it's very easy for our minds to always be feeling discontented, always wanting more always wanting to go somewhere else. This place is not good enough. Uh, this set of conditions is not good enough. And that's unfortunate because it could well be certainly good enough. And, uh, I've seen it happen even in our monasteries over the years where they have a, a tremendously good fortune. Um, the living conditions, the buildings, the environment, the safety, uh, have all the support and and the teachings to encourage us in our practice. And, and then as people come and join the monastery and maybe the first year, second year, there's this enthusiasm and, and, and gratitude and appreciation. At last I've found somewhere that's, that I can really commit myself to. And then after two or th maybe three or perhaps four years, start to forget the discontentment and the dissatisfaction that inspired people to come to such a place as this and then they start seeing all the faults with the place and, and instead of being pleased and grateful actually you start feeling displeased and ungrateful and, and then the old unruly habits untamed tendencies of our hearts flare up and we start blaming the place blaming the people we live with blaming the conditions 
like this monastery here, there's, I've heard people complain about, oh, there's a road that goes right through the middle of the monastery. And, uh, wow, there's a road that goes through the middle of the monastery. And is that the end of the world? Uh, if you look around the, throughout Buddhist history and, and see the conditions that Buddhist monks and nuns have lived in, this is, again, an extraordinary good fortune. However, if we are allowing ourselves to fall prey to uh, a lack of gratitude, a lack of appreciation, then sure enough those tendencies can take over. And so cultivating our storehouse of goodness, like for instance gratitude, it's not the case that gratitude is just going to grow naturally. It's something that we, because of the way our minds be conditioned, we it's something that benefits from conscious attention. Dwelling on the benefits of gratitude and spending time every day thinking about how how extraordinarily fortunate we are. Again, not in a moralizing, judgmental way, but just registering, oh yeah. How many how many things, if I think back today, how many things can I feel grateful for? Once we get into it, it could take a really long time. So conscious appreciation, cultivating conscious appreciation as as a force of goodness and, and expressing it. Again, even if we do start to feel gratitude, do we know how to express it, to, to really sincerely express gratitude? Mm-hmm. And to feel what it feels like when somebody sincerely express, expresses gratitude to us. That's part of cultivating the ability to express gratitude. Uh, how do we learn to express gratitude? Well, stop and register. What does it feel like when somebody genuinely expresses gratitude to us? It feels really good. And we can be inspired by registering that. Uh, or maybe we're somebody who, because again, the way we were conditioned and brought up, we don't know how to receive gratitude. When somebody expresses gratitude to us, we we dismiss it or ignore it or pretend it's not happening. And so just mentioning these as, as qualities that could be cultivated as examples of building up our storehouse of goodness, mudita, taking delight in the well-being of others. And somebody commented to me recently, I've been speaking about that that word schadenfreude, or I spoke about it, and, and somebody commented on how they thought that the opposite of schadenfreude, which is taking delight in the misery of others, is mudita. You know, what, a, what a beautiful quality that is, really consciously taking delight in the well-being of others. You know, again, just mentioning as an example of building up the storehouse of goodness. So preparing the ground, building up the storehouse of goodness, and then the third line of Satchita Prayotapanang, this, this four-line stanza of the Buddha, um, purifying the heart. What does it mean to purify the heart? In our daily life practice, we learn how to skillfully refrain from following heedlessness, and intentionally building up a storehouse of goodness, and then purifying the heart. Recently, I mentioned in a talk I gave about 
the benefits of getting a handle on the tendencies of the mind to get caught in compulsive judging. Purifying the heart or purifying awareness means becoming alert to that which is impure, like, for instance, a compulsive judging mind. And if I remember correctly, on that occasion I was saying, you know, freeing the heart from the compulsive judging tendency is not getting rid of the judging tendency. We wouldn't want to get rid of the tendency of the mind to be able to discriminate, and that's an aspect of intelligence. Rather, it's getting a perspective on the tendency of the mind to judge. It's like, it's just a, a part of who we are, like, like my hand. If I, I put my hand out in front of me, it's fine out there, but if I have it in front of my eyes, the hand is an, it's obscuring my seeing. And likewise, that aspect of my being that I refer to as the judging mind, if it's seen in perspective, it's not a problem. However, if we cling to it and identify as it, this discriminative intelligence is mine. It's, it is who I am. Uh, that compulsive discriminating, picking and choosing, taking sides, it, rather than serving our well-being and, and being a helpful uh, capacity to navigate our way through life, it's actually an obstruction. So purifying the heart, one way of looking at purifying the heart is to get a handle on this, the compulsive judging mind, always taking sides for and against. And, and the way we get a handle on it, or get a perspective on it, is just to stop judging the judging mind. Step back, fall back, just watch it. Not doing some sophisticated, fancy meditation technique, sitting comfortably in a chair for 20 minutes, doing nothing until the compulsive judging mind shows its face. You're wasting your time. You shouldn't be doing it. There it is. That's it. I should be, should be, shouldn't be. That's it. That's a compulsive judging mind. And I shouldn't be judging. There it is again. And if we see the judging of the judging mind going on, already we've got a little bit more of a perspective on it. And we start, maybe start to feel a release. Oh, Oh, what a relief. We don't have to judge the judging mind. All the tendency we have for projecting, projecting our, our, we can project our ability, we can project our pain onto others. I was mentioning a minute ago the, the tendency after living in a monastery, for instance, for, for two or three years, it happens quite regularly. That, first two or three years is fine and then the medicine starts to work and, and the old, deep, unaddressed tendencies of aversion and sadness and fear start coming to the surface. And instead of really honestly owning up to them and acknowledging, oh right, this is the next thing to work with, there's a very easy tendency to project out onto the environment, oh, there's something wrong with this place, it's the weather or it's the teacher. And, and, and. So another aspect of purifying the heart is just, just committing to simply being honest about the tendency to project, projecting our negativity out. Or it's also 
smart to prepare ourselves to be alert to where we're projecting our ability. This is where students project their ability out onto the teacher. They want the teacher to be strong and amazing for them and, and so they get attached to the teacher. Or somebody in therapy gets attached to the therapist and rather than learning to take responsibility for their life and grow up, they just keep paying the therapists and keep going back, keep going back and stay stuck in therapy for years. Or staying stuck in an immature relationship with a spiritual teacher for years rather than really owning their ability. It's, it's like a laziness of mind to project our ability out onto others. And so purifying awareness can mean only up to that. And as we all know from and regularly being reminded that the Buddha pointed out that when we're struggling, it's for only, only for two reasons. The Buddha said there's two reasons you keep struggling. It's through not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. And if we're in too much of a hurry and too greedy, we can bypass that and, and not recognize. The Buddha really wanted us to get interested in the pain of life. Pain is a message. And if we don't get interested in it, then we distract ourselves and blame somebody for it. And then we don't learn the lesson. And that's really regrettable. So another aspect of purifying the heart, again, an element of just being honest and, and owning up to this is painful. This is painful. And, and instead of following the tendencies to divert attention from it, uh, training ourselves carefully to actually welcome it. You know, from one perspective, that can sound crazy. However, it's really important. It's just the same as you know, if, we, if we stub our toe, which these days, I confess, happens to me more and more. I, 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 as my, my knees get more wobbly and I... I kick the, the the door as I walk through it, and, and, and ouch, that hurts. And that pain means I stop and look and say, well, is there blood? Sometimes there is. Yeah. Is there an injury? Sometimes there isn't. If there is, well, then you've got to cover it, protect it from getting infected. If there wasn't a pain, then we wouldn't stop and look. And, and then there's a risk of infection. Well, likewise, with the heart pain, with the dukkha that we experience, it's a message. Not seeing dukkha, not seeing the cause of dukkha. That was, that's the cause of our struggle. And so purifying awareness means owning up to these tendencies to distract ourselves from the struggle of life. The Buddha had pain, but he didn't have any struggle. You know, when the Buddha was older, he sat sunning his back on Vulture's Peak, and presumably he had arthritis. And he had pain, but he didn't have struggle. What was the difference? Because he wasn't denying, he wasn't resisting the pain. We need to own up to where we're resisting the pain. And so that means training our faculties to really welcome it, not looking for it. However, when it comes along to put our hands together in Anjali and say, welcome Ajahn Dukkha, welcome Ajahn Dukkha. Please teach me what I need to learn, because I'm still hanging on to something here. 
there's something I need to learn. Please teach me what I need to learn. And again, as I say, it can sound weird from a worldly perspective. From a Dhamma perspective, this is what we need to be doing. We're only going to be free from the obstructions in awareness, from the pollutions in the heart, if we get really interested in the reality and the actuality. And if we can do that, well, then all sorts of things start to become apparent, like there's different types of dukkha. We can see there's different ways that dukkha manifests. For instance, sometimes, as I was saying, dukkha just manifests because we're resisting pain. You know, it's just this everyday pain and we resist it and it becomes a struggle. That's what I refer to as present-generated dukkha. However, then there's another level of dukkha, which I refer to as, as old, unmet dukkha. And that's where something from the past, which we never really resolved, appears in the mind and is ready to be met. And this is quite different from present-generated dukkha and requires a different sort of effort. If we don't see these different types of dukkha, we can treat all dukkha as the same. And the same approach doesn't always work. So if it's some old, unmet dukkha, we, maybe we need another, another approach. Maybe we need to stop and reflect on it and, and, and analyse it. Yeah. If it's present-generated dukkha, we just say, all right, stop doing that. I see what I'm doing here, resisting it, just accept it. And then it's it, it's resolved, end of story. If it's old, unmet dukkha, maybe it takes some more reflection and takes some patience. Maybe it takes a lot of patience. I can remember when a moment of old, unlived, unmet dukkha appeared in my mind after very many years of practice and really surprising. It wasn't that this memory you know, wasn't there. I, I, I can remember this incident. I don't know, maybe it was about eight years old when this incident happened. And it wasn't that I didn't have the memory. It's just that I hadn't really met it. And when I did really meet it and was there for it, there's a sense of relief. Uh, it, was a, it was a situation whereby this couple had moved in across the road from where we lived in our house. And, and um, I can still remember the name of the family and I now remember where they came. They were immigrants. I remember where they came from and the job that the husband had and, and they were people who used to go to the same church that our family went to and I was very fond of them and they seemed to be very nice to me and I cared about them a lot. And, and then... Well, they were away at one stage and I was over there and I, I was playing with their dartboard and I managed to break one of the darts. It wasn't a proper dartboard, it was just one that had a little suction button on the end and, and it was a kind of a play dartboard and I broke it and, and I was very upset and very afraid and, and so I never told anybody but a few days later after they'd come back, after they returned and my parents found out that something had happened in one way or another, it turned out that I was discovered and I was told that I had to go over and, and confess my sins to this couple and tell them. And I can remember I was absolutely terrified of what was going to happen. And, and I remember going over there and eventually telling them and really, really scared. And, and I don't remember what did happen after that. All I do remember was being really, really scared. And, and the, this stayed stuck in my nervous system for very many years. However, when it was time for it to be met, there it is again, 
to be ready for that. And not just to say, oh, that doesn't matter and dismiss it. Also not to indulge in it. However, really to be ready to meet dukkha when it appears, get interested in it. Whether it's present generated dukkha, old unmet dukkha, or another category I refer to as uh, adopted or assimilated dukkha, where it's something like everybody experiences aversion. That's normal. All beings, all human beings experience aversion. However, if our primary carers, those around us, those we trust, have got a lot of denied aversion, and they're very identified with it, and it's, it's turned toxic, it can become hatred. If, for instance, we've got parents who are carrying a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, a lot of hurt, it can, it can somehow potentize our own tendencies for getting caught up in aversion. And it's not that you know, we're somehow adopting their, their karma. You know, everybody's responsible for their own karma. However, we can be very strongly affected by the suffering of those around us. Or sadness. Everybody experiences sadness. If those who we're living with have got a lot of denied sadness, and, and it can also have a very unhelpful effect on our own awareness. We can, so approaching dukkha with interest, welcoming it, being willing to learn from it, this goes against our worldly conditioning, which is to pursue happiness, as if we can just acquire happiness like going to a supermarket or ordering happiness online. In reality, that kind of synthetic, transitory, unstable happiness, that's, that's not reliable. There's no end to that. The Buddha did talk about a quality of happiness that is really stable, really secure, and that's the happiness that comes with a purified heart. So this short teaching, this stanza of refraining from that which is unsuitable, building up a storehouse of goodness and cultivating that which is wholesome, purifying the heart. And then the last line, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. It's worth noting that in this stanza, the Buddha used the plural Buddhas. This isn't only the teaching of our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Thank you.